Welcome to Coffee House. We have San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger. We read one of his books, the other one, Apocalypse Never, a little while ago. I was just re-listening to that episode so I can remember all the things that he had in there. But today it's specifically about the city by the bay, San Francisco, a place that I have visited. It was cold and there were a lot of homeless people there. <laughs> but that's what we're trying to figure out, what happened to the place. The subtitle of the book is Why Progressives Ruin Cities. So what Schellenberger says, who is running for office, I believe, somewhere in California, for some role in California, he says, I just want to clean up the mess in regards to San Francisco and the progressive stronghold there. The city is notable for being one of the cities most overrun by homelessness in the country, despite or, or perhaps because of its progressive leadership. There is vast wealth disparity in the city. Its representative, Nancy Pelosi, who has been a politician for at least 30 years, is known for her uh, $20,000 refrigerator and her custom-made ice cream. But Schellenberger wants to determine why. Why is San Francisco like this? So, as always, we will go through the contents of the book, then we're going to talk about the an analysis. This is going to be in two parts. This is actually longer, and <laughs> it keeps happening. I keep, I think, pulling more information out of books than I used to, so it makes uh, a couple of parts necessary, but I might, in the future, just start pruning out less necessary information so we can make sure to fit it into one episode, or we'll just do, you know, very long episodes. <laughs> so, I'm not sure how that's going to go in the future, but it will break one way or the other. But then we will talk about some big picture stuff to try to wrap the information into a broader understanding of the world in general. So, the contents. Chapter 1. He references lampposts corroded by urine. That's one thing that you love to see when you're in a great city by the bay. San Francisco has a higher share of the chronically homeless. Miami, Phoenix, and Houston have year-round warm weather as well, but fewer per capita homeless. And they all declined. Their level of homelessness declined from 2005 to 2020, while the San Francisco homeless crisis rose 30 plus percent. And it's not actually the case that very poor people are homeless as a rule. That's not the characteristic that is most salient. Some of the biggest issues in the homeless populations are the heavy substance and prostitution concerns. And when you look at specifically the repeat homeless, there are some people who they will be homeless and then they will get out of homelessness and they will stay out of it for the duration. But the repeat homeless, you most commonly see these two characteristics, addiction and disaffiliation. So addiction is, you know, substance abuse, whether it's alcohol or drugs, and disaffiliation is becoming estranged from their families. Chapter 2, Pleasure Island. It's not that San Francisco or California in general, historically, for the last the past few decades, has been just super pro-homeless and anti-curbing homelessness in general. In 2004, they banned aggressive panhandling. In 2016, they banned camping on sidewalks. But these were challenged by progressive leaders as racist. So San Francisco spends 31000 per homeless just for housing. That's not including all the other things that they have to spend on. They even give direct payments in some cases. And then some of the locals who are in these homeless communities, and this is one thing that Schellenberger does a lot, is talks to specifically members of the homeless community. I hate using that word, It's but it works in this context. So people who are homeless, he will talk to them specifically. And people who were formerly homeless and are now activists, he will talk to them, people who have these experiences directly. And one of them talked about how they would get the direct payments, or, you know, from the, the city or the state or whoever, and they would save that money and then go to charities to get food, free food. So instead of spending that money on food, they, they would keep the money and spend it on drugs. 
And then other homeless talked about how the reasons that they came to San Francisco was because the drugs were cheap and abundant, and there was a lax police force that didn't enforce the drug laws. The son of one person said it was like Pleasure Island in Pinocchio. You know, had grown up watching Pinocchio and said it was a lot like that Pleasure Island. In San Francisco, they have the worst overdose rate in the country. And even though they built a new shelter, there was increased camping because more people were arriving from other states because they were induced by the kinds of lax policing policies and abundance of drugs that you can get. And the thing is that the progressives who advocate these policies, they tend to leave these bad areas so they don't have to suffer the bad results of the policies. There was one instance where somebody asked one of the progressive leaders about accountability for how the homelessness rate has just gotten so much worse over the course of decades, despite all the policies that have been put into place by these leaders. And they said that unhoused violence will go up when you ask those kinds of questions. So demanding accountability and results will increase unhoused violence. So violence against people who are unhoused. And that's despite the fact that violence actually has declined. And this is something, this is me, you know, talking separately, this is something that has been consistent, especially recently, is that they have to jump to some ridiculous non-sequitur and use that as a kind of counter-argument to say that, no, all these bad things will happen. I don't have to show you any evidence that these things are happening, or actually will happen as a result of whatever you're saying, but allowing you to say these things, to question me in any way, is going to lead to violence, or doing this particular thing is racist, like what they, they call the, the laws against camping on the sidewalks or panhandling. Those incredibly vague non-sequiturs that they use to try to put opposition into a particular place and prevent them from being able to question their methods. But you see it constantly. You see it in every aspect. Every political question there is, there is some version of this that comes out. So chapter 3, the experiment was a success, but the patient died. So advocates, these housing advocates, and this is the difference, is that uh, there are these housing advocates that have a pretty strong stranglehold in places like San Francisco, where they say that, no, you can't just build shelters where everybody has to be housed together. You have to build single housing units, or you have to use hotels. This is something, this is recently in the paper, actually, where they talked about making hotels that already exist take in homeless people because they're not using their rooms, and making that a requirement of being able to do business in California. Oh, my God. God, these bad ideas. What is that going to do? Is that going to maybe increase the costs of being able to to uh, provide the service of being a hotel in those areas? Possibly. You know, all those kinds of extra costs that are attendant with introducing a, a group of people that disproportionately use drugs and have mental illness. Anyway, whatever the case, the, like I said, the fundamental conflict is you have people who are housing first. They say that if you get housing to people, then this kind of individual housing that's like any other kind of housing, then that's going to solve it. And that shelters are a bad thing because it just groups all the people together. So we don't need the shelters. Miami and other cities who had a homelessness problem have more shelter beds per homeless and have consistently reduced homelessness. But places like San Francisco have spent two decades rejecting shelters as a, a response to homelessness. There was one meeting they actually had where one of the participants said, okay, they deserve housing, and you know what? Everybody deserves a granite top in their kitchen. They deserve that as well. There's a, a group called Housing First uh, that advocated this, that said housing was the most important thing that you had to do. But when the studies were done related to, you know, what impact this had on homelessness and what other effects that it had, the Housing First initiative and shelters had a similar death rate. 
Despite being much more expensive and being able to service far fewer individuals, it had a similar death rate. And there was no requirement in the Housing First uh, to improve addiction, whereas in shelter areas, you know, they would discourage that kind of behavior. There was no improvement to health that was discernible in the studies. And there was evidence that privacy, having that privacy in your own place, increased the likelihood of drug use. Chapter 4, The War on the War on Drugs. So one of the things, uh, there's this book, The New Jim Crow, that talked about incarceration was the new Jim Crow. Because incarceration was so high, and there's the playground to prison pipeline, is that what they call it, for the alliteration. But notwithstanding what the book wants to assert in The New Jim Crow, that book said explicitly that it was due to drugs. So that was the incarceration problem. That the vast majority of people who are being incarcerated at such high rates is because, you know, minor possession charges or just engaging in the use of drugs, and that's why they were there. But 3.7% of federal inmates are there for nonviolent drug conviction. Over half of the drug convictions in state prisons are for drugs plus violence. And then other drug offenders in prison had prior offenses, and only 20% in all of them are there for drugs. And that's including, you know, like intent to distribute and being a dealer and all those sorts of things. Only 1% of the people who were in prison were there for first or second drug offenses in 1997. So these are the people who were just, they got caught with weed or got caught with cocaine or something like that. And it was their first or second drug offense, and that's the reason they were in prison. It was about 1%. Violence, not drugs, is responsible for incarceration. There's a discussion of the, the crime bill for the crack violence epidemic that is cited nowadays. It said, you know, it was this crackdown on crack, and it wasn't for cocaine, but it was in the inner city, and it disproportionately incarcerated people in the inner city, so it was called this uh, horrible racist thing. This bill was explicitly asked for by the Black Caucus at the time because there was such an increase in violence. And so the important message is that it's the, the resulting violence that was the problem. It wasn't the crack itself that led to increase levels of incarceration. So the mass incarceration that is cited is specifically about violence, not drugs. And there was one guy who said that it was not a homelessness problem, it was an addiction problem. That was the problem that was the underlying issue that led to such increased rates of homelessness. So, obviously, this is a huge question. It's a huge question on what to do about drugs just in general. And drugs are a different kind of animal relative to alcohol. Alcohol actually takes a long time to kill. That's uh, notwithstanding, you know, drunk driving and, and those kinds of accidents. But when it comes to alcohol and the general use and how it generally kills people, it will take years and years and years of use before you get the kinds of damage that's going to kill you. Drugs are something that, depending on the drug, obviously, is something that can kill you in minutes, something that you can overdose in during a one-time use. So the drug liberalization rules that have been implemented in a lot of these places, uh, you know, it's supposed to destigmatize it, but it tends to increase the use of it. So places like Portugal are cited as kind of uh, an example. Uh, it's supposed to be the, the thing to follow is in places like Portugal. And it's cited as having legalized it, but it didn't legalize it, decriminalized it. And this is what happened actually in the DMV area in the United States. A lot of uh, drugs were decriminalized. So it's still, you'll still get a civil citation and it'll still be discouraged, but you won't get a criminal citation. You won't be arrested for these kinds of things. But in Portugal, they decriminalized it, but they still pushed hard to end the use of all these drugs. So they have, uh, they pressure people into treatment, long-term treatment. And one of the, one of the effects of decriminalization 
legalization in a lot of different areas. Uh, like there was a, a place in the United States where they decriminalized heroin and the users increased fivefold. But what happens is that decriminalization decreases the prices. And this is a, an economic effect that people don't realize is that if you make it easier to provide a particular service or good like drugs by removing the impediments to it, like police, like people getting arrested, like having to pay for lawyers, like having to find new dealers, all those sorts of things. If you remove those costs, then they can take the price down because they're still in a competitive market. So they can reduce those prices and still make enough of a profit to keep going. So as always, the road to hell paved with good intentions. So chapter five. We can't end overdoses until we end poverty and racism. This is the claim that is made. There were billboards that are specifically cited here that encourage the safe use of fentanyl. It's not saying don't use it. It's saying use it safely. There's a whole bunch of downplaying of the harms or risks when it comes to drugs. You can't use shaming in a lot of these places like San Francisco. You're not supposed to shame people who use drugs. Say that's a bad thing. And you have skyrocketing death rates. And none of the people that he talks to, there are many throughout this whole book, there are specific interviews that he has with progressive activists and people on the other side who were part of this, who are trying to you know, implement different kinds of changes. And one of the things about the progressive activists is that they did not care about reducing the death rate. That wasn't the, the grave concern of theirs. And one excellent comparison that you can look at is that in Malibu, California, where, you know, it's mostly rich people, they have these kinds of treatment facilities. And when you look at the practices of the treatment facilities in Malibu, they're extremely severe. They, they impose a whole bunch of requirements on you and prevent you from being able to use and, uh, you know, are willing to shame and all those sorts of things. Whereas in Skid Row, where you have much poorer users and people who have implemented a lot of these progressive tactics when it comes to drugs, they are much more lax. They are much more willing to uh, let you use and encourage use if you feel like you need to. And don't try to shame you or prevent you from engaging in these activities. And repeatedly you'll see throughout, and I will get to it more later, but repeatedly you'll see throughout, the people who actually went through this and came out of it on the other side and are now activists trying to implement better changes, they are extremely clear about the fact that you need to engage in this kind of tough love. That's extremely important, is preventing people from doing things that they think they want to do that are not in their best interests. So chapter six, let's go Dutch. Uh, the Dutch system is something that Schellenberger believes is more effective. So what they use is carrots and sticks. You have to punish. You have to be able to punish people who are engaging in behavior that's bad. Miami reduced their homelessness population by 50%. And one of the things they did was they broke up open air markets. In San Francisco, they let you have these open air markets where it's easy to procure the kinds of drugs that you want. But when you break up these open air markets, it's less of a public nuisance and it increases the cost to be able to provide these drugs. Again, you have to look at these economics of it. Whatever you want to do, whatever in your heart you feel about how somebody needs to be treated who's on drugs or anything else, who engaging in any bad behavior, you have to realize that there's a cost. When you provide certain incentives, people are going to respond to incentives. So you need to be able to, be able to do that on both sides, carrots and sticks. You need both law enforcement and social services. You need law enforcement to prevent the behaviors that are bad for the community and bad for the people. And you need social services on the other end to be able to engage in the kind of tough love that's necessary. Longer treatment is better because a lot of these treatment situations that you have in places like San Francisco is you'll have a short-term treatment. The moment that people are more likely because they're going through withdrawal, they desperately need the drug again. If that's the point that they're kicked out of the treatment, then they're much more likely to use again. 
mandatory treatment for criminals. If you're arrested for a crime, especially a crime of violence, then involuntarily submitted to treatment. Inpatient works better than outpatient, so having somewhere where you have to go, where you have expectations, works better than being out and just uh, hoping, based on the honor system, that you're going to follow these procedures. And it's a problem to constantly be offered or exposed to drugs, which is something that is encouraged in places like San Francisco. Chapter 7, The Crisis of Untreated Mental Illness. So there's this this issue historically, there was this emptying of state mental hospitals. And Ronald Reagan was blamed for a lot of this because he did when he was in office. That was one of the things that he wanted to do. By the time he had actually gotten into office, about half of them had already been released by Democrats. But this was a problem. This was a problem of removing people from mental institutions. California Democrats have been active in shutting down mental hospitals for a long time, and they end up spending the most per capita for mental health in California, but it's not even in the top 10 in actual mental health, like the mental health results. So long term, this has been an absolutely terrible thing to be doing. Chapter 8, Madness for De-Civilization. Michel Foucault makes uh, makes an appearance. I remember reading Foucault when I was in undergrad. We read Discipline and Punish at some point. But Californians have loved it, loved Foucault for a long time. Foucault suggests that whatever actions the state is trying to take, it's trying to exert control over the person. So if it's engaging, like in Discipline and Punish, he talked about how the state has been trying to reduce expression of violence as much as humanly possible when it came to executions. So all the way down to just a pinprick being the the exertion of violence over, over the person. But when the state is trying to control people who are insane, you know, who have schizophrenia or have any other kind of mental illness, it's really this just them trying to exert control. It's not them trying to help or something like that. So this becomes an extreme version or interpretation where you look at it and say that, okay, well, anything the state might do that is imposing on somebody, then it's just the state trying to grab control. So therefore, we have to divest the state as much as possible from its uh, attempts to assuage or push a person into doing one thing over another thing. So that's why it's so hands-off when it comes to the use of drugs. Now, the hilarious, obviously, irony of this is that the opposite is the state trying to gain as much power as humanly possible to be able to manage everything that you do. As long as you're moving through a state institution or a state program, then the state is gaining more power. You know, they're the ones supplying you with the clean drug needles. That means they're exerting control over that situation. So it's this weird inversion of the kind of Foucault idea. And uh, we will at some point read Foucault and go through that. But there are a whole bunch of, you know, arcane philosophical ideas that we'd have to unpack to be able to get there. But the point here is that they're trying to be as hands-off and non-judgmental as humanly possible when it comes to drug users, while also being directly involved in the coddling and fostering of the drug use. So for Schellenberger here, he talks about how contingency management actually works well. So contingency management is something like you provide a contingency. You say, if you can stay off of drugs for an extended period of time, and in this example, he used being able to see your child. So it seems barbaric, but if you can maintain your sobriety for, you know, this number of months, then you'll be able to see your child. And managing those contingencies actually work better in getting people off of these things. You give them incentives to change behavior. And then this uh, better behavior will continue even after the incentives are gone. There could be rewards like gift cards or apartments, uh, tangible real-world rewards that can motivate people to, you know, engage in better behavior, get off drugs or whatever. But this is the kind of thing that is rarely used in the United States to encourage better behavior. 
so that's that's gonna have to be the end of part one because I'm already a half an hour into this thing. So we're gonna move into the assessment for this particular part. <laughs> So the assessment so far, it seems overly focused on homelessness. Obviously, we're talking about specifically San Francisco and the kinds of progressive policies that have uh, led to its long-term decay. But it might be just an expression of San Francisco in microcosm, because the point is that agenda-driven activists ignore what works to follow an ideology. There are many conversations that he has where he'll say, like, okay, what is the, why is it that none of these policies have been working or helping or anything, and they just get defensive and annoyed and don't want to talk anymore? Instead of recognizing or acknowledging the fact that, that the point of what they're doing is supposed to be helping people. It's not supposed to be imposing an ideology or um, emotionally validating their ideas. And one thing you realize is they will lie happily when it comes to any of these things. They're, they're happy to lie about whatever they need to to get their point across. And the decades of failure do not impact their confidence in their approach. Contra examples from other states like Florida or other countries don't impact their confidence. It's very easy to deceive oneself when the problem is complex. You'll find a single rationale and cling to it regardless of new information. And every time someone challenges you, you just return to that single rationale. You know, out of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of inputs that actually go into this problem, they'll cling to one thing and say that, oh, well, I have this. I can ignore everything else <laughs> related to this. I'm just going to cling to this one thing. Thing. So big picture wise, it is actually in Democrat best interest to ruin cities. And this is something that I don't think people are aware enough that there are certain incentives in place. As long as those incentives are in place, it's going to make perfect, logical, rational sense for people to do things to fulfill those incentives. So the worse things get, the more people want government intervention. And you see this in, in various cities all over the country. If Democrats were disincentivized from doing bad things or destroying their local communities or their cities, then they wouldn't be doing that. But they, the incentive is for them to do that. Most people are not engaged in politics or history to a great extent. They just want to passively imbibe the correct superficial positions just to get by in any conversation they might run into and get back to their you know TV and TikTok or whatever. So they're disengaged enough to not realize that the worse things get, the more they're going to give the government power and money to try to fix it. But the government has the incentive to make things worse so that they can get more power and money. So sometimes I just think in places like Detroit and Chicago and San Francisco, you just think that they get what they deserve. If that's, if that's what they want to vote for, then they can take it and they can have it. Just like the policy that came up related to using hotels to house homeless people that weren't fully rented out. Like if that's what you want to vote for, you get what you deserve. If you want to go stay at a hotel in LA and it's uh, you know 50% capacity is homeless people and you want to deal with that in the halls and the sounds and the drugs and the public defecation, then guess what? Have at it. You know, if they can't figure it out, then they deserve whatever attendant suffering comes with it. Maybe it will require that suffering for people to realize how much work it took to get where we are, this position of historical luxury. But there are people that will suffer greatly, not through their own deep faults or their advocacy of for destructive policies, but because they happen to live in this time and place. So notwithstanding any moralizing we might do, don't we have a duty? If it's within our power to make people healthy who can be healthy. So it's a back and forth. It shouldn't be a back and forth. But for me, it certainly is. 
At the end of the day, you know, the thing that bothers me the most is when people are completely disingenuous and dishonest about reality, about things that make sense and don't make sense. So I have to attack that wherever I see it. But the truth is that the way that the ruling class communicates, it's not that they're so dumb that they don't understand these aspects of society. It's not that they're so dumb that they don't understand that when you incentivize people to use drugs or engage in criminal activity, that they're going to use more drugs and engage in more criminal activity. They get that. They know that that's what's going to happen. And that's the point. That's what they're trying to get. So there has to be some other way that we fight this fight beyond just trying to point out the truth, you know, where we can. I mean, we still have to do that, but we still we have to be able to communicate in more effective ways uh, that are going to be not just truthful, but also useful and effective. So um, anyway, that's just some ruminating on that particular question. So that was uh, the first part of San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger, and we'll have the second part coming up and a whole bunch of other stuff in the mix. I hope all is well. I'll see you in the next one. All right, bye. <laughs>